So we're, we're on uh, week eight of the uh, study on Nehemiah. Now we start with Nehemiah because I just felt that there was a message for this body in Nehemiah. And then we got to the gates of Nehemiah. And uh, the gates of Nehemiah are symbolic not only in the Christian life, like your life and my life, it's also, I believe, symbolic for the body of, the, of Spirit Chapel as we kind of move through. Uh, so this is, there's a lot here. We've been going through them. Here's the gates we've covered so far. These sermons are all online. You go back again. The Sheep Gate was the first one, the Fish Gate, the Old Gate, the Valley Gate, and last week, my favorite gate, the Dung Gate. Uh, we covered that one last week. Uh, now, each one of these gates, by the way, if you look at them, they, go in counter, they start at the very north of Jerusalem. They go counterclockwise because, you know, if you know Hebrew, you read r- right to left in Hebrew. So you're going around this way. It's not just that these are symbolic of times in your life as a Christian. I believe the order we go through them is also very, very specific. And we talked last week how kind of watching how people go through the gates, it seems Christians end up getting stuck at the last gate. Of all gates to get stuck on, the dumb gate. Because this is where we're trying to get the things that are actually poisoning our lives out of our lives. The things, anything at all that's causing a disconnect between us and God, we got to get it out of our lives. That's what the dumb gate for it's to get refuse and waste out of our life and I promised you that if you stuck with me through the dung gate we'd have a better gate coming and that's this week this week has a great gate and one of my absolute favorites and so we're going to show it to you first in Nehemiah uh, in Nehemiah uh, Shalom the son of Calhoz the official of the district of Mizpah uh, repaired the fountain gate he built it, covered it, and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And the wall of the pool of Shelah at the king's garden as far as the steps that descend from the city of David. We are now on something known as the fountain gate. I told you they're getting better. <coughs> it kind of makes sense after that last one, right? Uh, but the, the, the fountain gate... It, it, you know, when I first you know, was going to preach on it, I knew the fountain gate was coming. And I was praying about it before I actually read the passage from Nehemiah. Uh, what's this about God? You know, what's, and then I read it. I thought, wow, the symbolism here just couldn't be more clear. So first of all, this one here was interesting. He built it and covered it and hung its doors. Some translations will say put a roof on it. This, by the way, is the only gate that has a roof. Of all ten, this is the only one that has a roof. And, and this gate, I'm going to kind of describe it for you now for a minute because it, it, I'm going to tell you where this goes into Jerusalem. And you'll probably halfway through the description realize what this gate's all about. Um, but anyway, so he builds it. First it starts a covering because when you come to this gate, you're protected. You're protected from the elements raining on your head or anything. You can walk under. The sun's not beating down on you. Before you even enter this gate, you open the gate and there's a fountain. Now, fountains are interesting because in and of themselves, they're not really dramatic. They're not flashy. I know that you know, the Bellagio fountains or something seem flashy, but the fountain themselves aren't. That's why they usually stick statues and stuff in them to have water coming out of mouth, you know, the mouth of fish and stuff because they want to make it more flashy. But a fountain in and of itself, it's not flashy. It's kind of majestic. And it's beautiful, but it's beautiful because of its motion. See, a fountain is only a fountain if it's in motion. So there's movement involved in the fountain gate. Something else about fountains, I don't know if you know this, if anybody's been by one, you do, uh, they're peaceful. In fact, they're amazingly peaceful. When I was a kid, sixth grade, I think, uh, my brother Tim, who probably would have been about eighth grade, and I went to Pittsburgh with my dad. And I know I tell these stories now, and you guys all think my dad was trying to get rid of us. He really wasn't. Life was a little bit different then because we rode down there, and he left us all day to run around Pittsburgh. Uh, <clears throat> 
honestly, he loved us, but it was just a different time. Uh, anyway, so uh, we went down the Boulevard of the Allies to Tandy Leather Company, some of you know. The place, and we got some leather, we went up to this other place that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it was called Mellon Park. Some of you as old as me may remember Mellon Park. There's now a building there, but there used to be a park, and the very middle of the park was a fountain. And so Tim and I sat there, and we were making these moccasins that we, I don't know why, but somehow we were doing this, and, and I remember, and we, so for a while we're talking, and then we kind of, you know, get to working, and we're not talking for a long period of time, and somebody else is sitting there eating her lunch, uh, and all of a sudden, she looks over to us, and she says, where'd you guys learn to do that? And we about jumped out of our skin, because what happens when you're next to a fountain is you get lulled into this tranquility, and all you're hearing is the water falling, and you don't know it, but you're like this peace zone, and any noise at all will scare you. You're like, what was that? You know, anything coming from outside. Fountains are peaceful, is what I'm saying. The very first attribute of a fountain is it generates a peace in you. And now this particular fountain had its overflow water that went from the fountain and overflowed into something very special called the Pool of Siloam. Some of you may have heard it. It's sometimes called the Pool of Miracles. This is the pool, if you remember in the New Testament, Jesus sees a guy who's born without like eyeballs and Jesus makes mud with his spit and mud and he puts them in his eyes and he tells him to wash himself in the pool of Siloam. That's the pool. That's why it's known as the pool of miracles. So he came and he washed the clay out of his eyes and he could see again. You know, that was the big miracle there. So that's known as the pool of miracles. This pool, by the way, was lost for us for, for centuries. They just found it not too long ago. Uh, ironically, they found it by finding, following the directions to it from Second Chron Chronicles. So, well, that was an idea. Trust the Bible. It knows where it is. Anyway, so, but that's the pool. Now, if you go past the pool then, you're going to walk up these steps that lead you into the king's garden. Which is interesting because it's not the king's throne room. The king passes judgment in his throne room, but his garden is where he goes to relax. And usually, if you're meeting the king in the garden, you know him well. You're a friend or family. That's who meets him in the garden. So I want you to picture this. It's covered. You're protected. You go by this peaceful thing that's majestic and in motion. And it's eventually going to lead you to the garden of the king. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. This is the gate of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of aspects of the Holy Spirit that I could talk about. Uh, and I know that, you know, you're in a place called Spirit Chapel, and I'm about to talk about the Holy Spirit, and some of you I can see get tense. Like, it's going to get weird here all of a sudden, because um, the Holy Spirit has been subject to a thousands of years campaign of propaganda against him. And I say him because the Holy Spirit's a person. And, and it's unfortunate because the Holy Spirit doesn't deserve any of that. It's just the enemy is attacked to try to make us as afraid as possible of the Holy Spirit. In fact, there's kind of two schools of thought on the Holy Spirit. One is he's really not doing anything anymore. I heard one very famous preacher refer to the Holy Spirit as the operating system of Christianity. <laughs> like, man, what a horrible thing to say, knowing how often operating systems crash. Um, but, you know, he actually referred to him that. You know, that's, he's kind of in the background doing things all the time, but you don't really see him. He's important, but you don't see him. That's how he relegated him. And this is like a top 10 pastor. If I named him, you know him. And, and like that's not fair to the Holy Spirit because he's got a much bigger role in our lives than that. And then you get the other people who just like, you know, they do get weird with the Holy Spirit. So you got these two sides and pick one. Either one, they're going to pull you away from who the Holy Spirit is. But I don't want to spend a lot of time on a lot of that. Uh, I want to pick two 
characteristics of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's an he's a attribute and a person of God, and so he has all kind of facets to his personality. I'm going to just pick two of them that I hope everybody here says, yeah, I want that. So we can all agree, uh, and I don't have to convince you you want it, because there's two things that the Holy Spirit gives you. It gives you God's covering and gives you his anointing. There's two of the things the Holy Spirit gives you. These are very also misunderstood terms. I, I, um, when I was doing study for this, I ran across this whole teaching in the church, a certain a segment of the church, I guess, uh, that teaches God's covering as uh, passed from Christian to Christian. Like if you have a mentor, that mentor's covering from God passes to you. Um, that's got some very sketchy theology to it. But I'm not talking about that. Uh, I'm going to talk specifically about what the Bible says about God's covering to you, from God to you. Right? And it comes to you through the Holy Spirit. And these two things actually, I believe, go together. We see God's covering show up in many places, but one of the very first is Job. And Job, uh, the devil's angry because of God's covering of protection over Job. The devil says, you've made a hedge, a covering about him and his house and all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands and possessions have increased in the land. I can't touch him because he's covered with your protection and making the devil mad. That's how Job actually kind of starts, right? And he says, yeah, I need to touch him, then I'll show you who he really is, but you won't let me because you got this protection over him. Um, now, the one thing about God's protection, which I think everybody wants, is we have to understand that God's protection comes as a result of righteousness. It's a covering that comes as a result of righteousness. Now, don't get too caught up in that term. What righteousness, right, righteousness literally means in this case is right standing with God. Righteousness is saying that I'm right with God. That means that uh, I have, I've accepted and received him as my Lord. Uh, I know who he is. I understand that Jesus died for my sins. And even though I make mistakes, which we all do, I continually come back to him and saying, I'm, you know, repent and forgiveness for, the, for that mistake so I can get back in right standing with God. So the covering comes from righteousness. We see this in the, in the famous section from Psalms 91, my favorite psalm. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. So the, the image is like, you know, an eagle has got the little eaglets there and uh, the rain's coming and the eagle will spread its wings and put it over top of its baby chicks there in the nest so nothing touches them. It actually pulls them close to the body so they get warm and they're safe. This is the image that God's giving here in Psalm 91. He's saying, I'm going to cover you with my wing. I'm going to pull you in close so that nothing's going to touch you. I think we all want that. That sounds like something that'd be really great to have, right? This, this idea that God's going to cover us and absolutely nothing can touch us. That's wonderful, but you have to understand the rest of the psalm talks about why he's doing it. I'm just picking a couple of them. Uh, psalm 91.9, he starts out by saying, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. He knows who I am. Later on he says, he knows my name. We're, we're good. We're tight. We know each other well. It's not just, I have this vague idea about who Jesus is. I call him Jesus because he's told me, hey, you're my friend. Call me Jesus. Right? And, and hey, you're, you're with me. Call the heavenly king daddy. 
You know, that, that's that. that. That's who he is to you. There's a, there's a level here that we know him. He knows us. We're close. That's why this protection has come to us because of this right standing with God. If I were to ask religious people, hey, why do you believe in God? What do you believe this belief gives you? What three things do your belief in God give you? I would say that most of them would name protection in there somewhere. Everybody wants protection. You know, well, God protects me. I think most Christians, most, you know, most Muslims, most Jews would say that. Well, I think God will protect me. Well, based on what? You know, why do you think that? That's, that's not wrong, but why do you think God will protect you? It's astonishing that most people don't know the answer to that question. Well, it's because he's a good guy. You know? He likes protecting me, I guess. I have met a lot of people. The problem is what God's saying I'm going to protect you from is evil, not bad. And those aren't the same thing. See, we all want to be protected from the bad things in our life. That's what we really want. We want God to protect us from bad things. God says, well, I'm here to protect you from evil things. They're not always the same thing. I, I, um, I was talking to somebody once, and they, this is a you know, true story. They, they were out with a bunch of friends, a little bit too late, drank maybe a little bit too much. Uh, they didn't call themselves drunk, but, you know, whenever anybody was drinking too much and they tell you, I might have been a little bit drunk, yeah, they were drunk, okay? That's just always the case, in case you ever didn't know that. Um, maybe you don't have friends like I do. But, yeah, they, they admit, I may have been a little drunk. Yeah, they were drunk. Uh, so I got in the car, coming home late, a little bit drunk, and driving too fast, and they were in an accident. And it was a bad one because it was at high speeds. And um, they, you know, the car flipped and everything. And, and they ended up going, rushed to the hospital. And they told me later, I know God protected me. And I thought, okay, first of all, I'm not saying God didn't because God protects stupid people all the time. You know, that's, that's how come I'm still here. That's all right. I understand God can protect anybody at any time for any reason. But, you know, I asked, well, why do you think God protected you? You know, by all rights, I should have died. Okay, well, why didn't you? Why, why would you think he did that? And they don't know, and it's a good thing they didn't know because it certainly wasn't claiming this promise because they certainly weren't righteous at the point that they were drinking out with friends and, and, and driving home too fast in a car, drunk, and on a highway. Oh, God, protect me. Um, you understand there are times that you can claim the promise of God. There are times he gives you a promise, like in Psalm 91, because he loves me, I will protect him. And so there are times in your life when you feel evil's coming against you, you can stand on that promise of God. You promised that because I love you, uh, you'll protect me. I need that now. I need, a, I need to call in this promise right now. You can stand on the promise of God. And he answers that because he never breaks a promise. But when you're out of righteousness, you better be throwing yourself on the mercy of God, because this is way out of his promise. He, he, by right, doesn't have to protect you anymore. I'm not saying he won't, but you need to know where you're standing with him, because it's not a right standing. The other thing that's funny to me is that sometimes we make stupid mistakes and expect God to cover us. That's what we mean by God's covering. I can go out and do whatever stupid thing I want, and God will make sure I don't pay the price. Uh, actually, a loving father won't do that. Uh, not much. I think the most of you parents understand. Sooner or later, your kids have to understand ramifications of their actions, or they're never going to stop doing them. At some point, God's going to have to let us hit the ground to understand that falls hurt, you know? And uh, I talk to people about like this all the time, and they're talking about evil in their lives. It's really funny. It's like, well, I, was, I ran out of gas in the morning, and like, oh, where was God. I ran out of gas. It was snowing and everything. I don't know. Uh, did you not know you were running out of gas? Well, yeah, the night before on the way home, my, my, my little thing dinged. And did you 
Pastor David, well, but it was raining last night. I didn't want to stop. Okay, well, I'm pretty sure that what you're telling me is you didn't fill up your car and you ran out of gas and you're blaming God. That's kind of what it sounds like. But, but you running out of gas because you didn't want to get out of the car last night is not evil. It might be bad, but it's not evil. I mean, let's, let's be honest. It's, it's, but we expect God to protect us from it. Well, why? It's not evil. Uh, let me go one step further. Um, this one strikes really home for me. Um, if you have a septic tank in your house that doesn't seem to work very well, <clears throat> like somebody I know, and, uh, and we had like historic floods in the past week, and you're watching your septic tank back up in your house like three times a day, and you know, like you're living in soggy shoes with the shop vac, uh, it may feel evil to you what is happening, right? I mean, it's, I can tell you, it feels evil uh, to be cleaning that up three times a day and just watching it and realize there's nothing I can do to stop it. Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. Um, and I want to cry out to God, God, why are you doing this to me? Why aren't you protecting me? But what's happened to me is not evil. My septic tank system's 60 years old and it still works at all. That's almost a miracle right there. They're not supposed to last that long. Right? My septic tank failing after 60 years isn't evil. It's natural. It may not be fun and we may not be enjoying what's happening, but we have to learn to separate bad and evil in our life because God protects us from evil is the promise. He protects you from evil. The problem is a lot of times he's protecting us from evil so fast we don't see it. You know, and, and so we kind of learned how to take that for granted. I know a lot of Christians who've had such a covering on their lives, and I grew up like this, that I thought I could do anything, and God just simply protect me from sinning. Uh, and that eventually stops working, you know, because God will not be mocked. And, and I've had that in my life, but uh, I was praying about that. I said, God, show me a time when you've protected me that I didn't know it. Because I really want to use an illustration here, a personal illustration, but I don't have one. And I know you do it. I just don't know when. And, and this, this incident came back that was a couple years old between Victoria and me. Uh, it was a few years ago, I guess maybe three years ago, I was traveling a lot for work. And um, Victoria really hates it when I travel. She wouldn't tell me at the time, but she's told me since. One of the reasons she hates it is she's literally afraid when I travel. Like, you know, she, she doesn't like being alone like that. You know, I was traveling to Baltimore this time, and it wasn't like I was going to have a good time. I had to drive four and a half hours at night through the rain. And, you know, so I get there, and I call to you know, tell her, hey, I'm safe. And basically, she let into me. Well, I'm glad someone is. You know? And um, so it just kind of gets up to this point. I can't remember what all was said. All I do remember is how it ended, because it ended with Victoria hanging up on me. And I hate that. I was like, you know, which is why she did it, because she knows wives. You know, they know. They, wives are cool like that. They know. And so, uh, so she hung up on me. And uh, I hung up. And I threw the phone down. I go, wow. You know, okay, God, I'm not calling her back. I'll tell you right now. And um, I was mad. And I was actually heading back out uh, to get something to eat. Now, the hotel I was in had a lounge. And, uh, but I, I went down there first because I didn't want to go anywhere. I just want to eat and go, go to bed. But I heard loud music coming from me. Like, oh, man, I'm not in the mood for that. So that's why I was in my car when, when Victoria and I talked. And uh, so I, I was thought, you know, skip this. I'm just going back to the hotel, and I'm going to go to the lounge because I know where that is because I couldn't find anything open. So I, I turn around, I get lost. Um, and I'm in some neighborhood, I'm driving around trying to figure out how to get out of this neighborhood. Everything where I turn to dead end, I'm getting more and more frustrated. And a little bit later, the phone rings, I look at it, and it's Victoria. And I thought, okay, I'll answer it. But I thought that was being big of me, I'll answer it. And so I answered the phone, and I think I said something like, what? <laughs> and she says, well, I had to call you back. 
I said, okay. And I could tell there's something weird about her voice. She says, I, I, I have to, um, and pause, I have to apologize to you. And I said, okay, well, thank you for that. She says, I don't know why I have to apologize to you, but I do. <laughs> I said, Where is this coming from, you know? And it turned out she left and she was praying and God told her she had to call me and apologize. <laughs> and he, she says, I really don't know why, because I didn't do anything wrong, but God told me I had to call you and apologize to you, so I am. And I go, okay. This is like dad with two kids, right? You, you apologize to your husband right now. And I, I thought, okay, uh, well. And then actually the things got gentle, and we were able to talk, and she was able to express a little bit more of what she was really feeling. And I, I was able to tell her how I was feeling. And uh, right phone, hey, I said, guess what? I just, I just saw a subway. You know, I'm going to get something to eat, and thanks for the call. This has been great. I'll talk to you tomorrow. So I, uh, I get my subway, and I'm coming home, and I thought, well, God, you told Victoria to apologize to me? Why? And I, you know, God doesn't really speak to me in voice or something, but I just felt this came, this came to me when I asked him why. Uh, he said, uh, I'm just trying to protect your tender little feelings. And it was really funny, because I was complaining about her tender little feelings. And um, so I laughed, and I went home, and I thought nothing of it. I really haven't thought about that incident from that day to this much. I think maybe we talked about it once or twice. And this came back, and I'm praying about it. I said, Lord, are you telling me that you were protecting me? And I said, what were you protecting me from? He said, I didn't want you to go to that lounge angry at your wife. And that surprised me, you know, because I really don't think I'm one angry argument away from cheating on Victoria or anything. But as we get closer to God, every little thing starts bothering him about our relationship. And I don't know what would have happened had I gone angry to there. I mean, I really don't. I don't think anything as bad as you can imagine could happen. But at some point, God's trying to protect us from all the evil in our lives. And, and he's trying to keep it all. There's no sense because no matter what would have happened, if we hadn't spoken that night, the next day, we would have been angrier at each other. We would have let the sun go down on our anger as the Bible warns you not to. And so no matter what, that would have been worse, you know. So he approached Victoria probably because she was more open <laughs> instead of approaching me to get the reconciliation to start. And this is part of the way the Holy Spirit works to protect you. And this is the part of the way he works to keep evil away from you so fast you never knew it happened. It just turned into a funny story, but it could have been a lot worse. The Holy Spirit covers you with his protection, and that's how you get there. That's how you get this wonderful thing. There's this uh, phrase in, in Isaiah that I thought almost fits perfectly with our whole journey through all this, including the journey through Dungate. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the children of Zion. In other words, like when you get through that Dungate, you know, when he's washed it away and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from their midst, then the Lord would create over the whole area of Mount Zion, over the entire assemblies day by day, even with smoke, the brightness and flaming of fire by night, over all the glory will be a canopy, a covering. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. This is when God protects us, right? When we're finally there, we got all this filth washed out of our life, is that's when God comes in with this protection over us, right? Not just us, but everywhere. Just protects us so that we're sheltered from the heat of the day and we're sheltered at night. And this is where we find true peace. I meet people who are afraid. This is a very scary time in our country. I mean, it really is. There's a lot of fear out there. It's like people seem to thrive on stirring up fear. And every time you turn around, someone's afraid of something. And I meet people all the time that are seeking peace, seeking peace, seeking peace. You can't seek peace because actually peace is what happens when fear leaves. And so um, in 2 Timothy, Paul says this, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. 
He gave us a spirit of power and love and sound mind. That's what the Holy Spirit was given to you for. But light defeats darkness by its presence. See, darkness isn't a state. It, it isn't a thing. It's absence of light. You, you light one match and darkness flees, right? Because light is what matters. If, if you ever uh, talk to an artist, if you've watched people paint, like the old oil paintings and stuff, and, and you wonder how they get those, like if they're painting like a candle or something, how they get that bright spot on the candle? You, you know how they do that? They leave that part of the canvas blank because there's nothing brighter than the white of the canvas. There's nothing you can add to it. You, you leave that, and it just, it just, it's light. And, and light uh, is, is what we need. We need more light in, in, our, in our life. And in First uh, John, he says this, Look, there's no fear in love, because perfect love casts out fear. When Jesus enters in, fear goes. You don't, you don't need to search peace. You need to search Jesus, right? When Jesus gets there, you have peace because fear leaves. Fear is the absence of, of, of I mean, fear is the absence of peace. Peace is the absence of fear. When, when, when God's love gets there, fear goes. And you get the peace, and that's how you get that. Now, this all comes back to this thing called the anointing. And I don't have as much time to develop this as I'd like, but I want to go through this because this is something very misunderstood. When preachers talk anointing, hold on to your wallet, usually, because they're telling you they've been anointed by God and you need to fund their ministry. Um, you, could don't, you could do anything you want with your wallet. I'm not going to ask for your money right now, but I'm, I'm going to talk to you about the anointing because the anointing is actually a very important thing the Holy Spirit brings you, and he brings all of you. Everybody here who's being called into any kind of a ministry, God will give the anointing to and the anointing is specific to your cause. And this is uh, from the book of Hebrews. Now, may the God of peace, this is the benediction, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, in other words, the God who raised Jesus, he said, equip you in every good thing to do his will. This is what God is to do. He's saying, you have things to do for God, and he's going to equip you in order to do these things. That equipping is something called the anointing. The purpose of the anointing is to fill the gap between our abilities and God's expectations. That's all it is. And that's why I don't understand people getting, getting proud of it. Right? If God gives me an anointing to preach, it's because he knows I'm going to screw up as a preacher. And so he's giving me the anointing so even when I suck, the sermon doesn't have to. That's basically the purpose of the anointing, right? And so I can come here and I can be angry and I, cannot, I could be out. And, and God says, well, you're kind of a lost cause right now. I'm going to cover you with anointing so at least the people can still hear my word. Right? That's, that's the idea of the anointing. It's nothing that I'm, I mean, I'm grateful for it. Don't get me wrong. Believe me, I lean on the anointing probably more than I ought to, but I just, I always wonder about these people who act like the anointing is some great accomplishment of theirs. It's like, you understand it's all God, right? You understand anointing is all grace, and, and whenever, I, whenever I start thinking about my need for anointing, I remember uh, her books in, in the miracle, right? You can win on talent alone. Gentlemen, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. That's kind of how I feel about my preaching talent. You think I can make it on talent alone? I don't have enough talent to make it on talent alone. I need the anointing. I, I need that in my life or I can't do what I'm doing right now. I just can't. And so everything I do as a pastor, spirit chapel, I need God's anointing for. Everything you do in any ministry you have, and there are a lot of them going on, you know, they don't have to be an official ministry of the church. It, God gives you the anointing to do. That's the purpose of it, and that's the Holy Spirit filling the gap in your life between your abilities and God's expectations. People who don't want the Holy Spirit in their lives, they're asking for a hard, hard row to hoe. 
You need the Holy Spirit in your life. So I want to talk about a very famous story that you've heard before, but I want to kind of cast it maybe a little bit different, and I want to focus on one aspect of it, and that's the anointing. So we all have heard the stories of the one. It's like, you know, it's part of our culture, right? Harry Potter, you know, he was the chosen one. Neo from the Matrix, the one. King Arthur and the Knights, you know, he pulls out Excalibur because he's the chosen king. There's this idea that shows up in a lot of our uh, different mythology and folklores and modern movies. You know, there's always this idea of the one. You don't, he's always the one you don't expect and he comes from nowhere kind of thing. You end up rooting for him. He's the one. Well, in case you wonder where that came from, it came from the Bible. And so these things reverberate throughout time because there's a truth being told to us in the Bible that is part of our character and God's putting it in us and, and that's why we resonate to all these different stories. And so it starts out in First in Samuel. So there is a king. There's already a king and God comes to Samuel who is his his prophet, you know, would be played by Alec Guinness or something in, in today's movie. Uh, and, you know, kind of look like a wizardish kind of guy. That'd be Samuel, right? So he's that guy. And he says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I've selected a king for myself among his sons. And so they go. And normally when the prophet shows up, it's, it's oftentimes bad news for the people. A lot of times the prophet, um, Samuel, was something known as a judge. And so he comes up. It could be he's bringing judgment. So they get a little bit nervous. They come out and said, are you coming in peace? You know, or are you going to bring fire down on us like Elijah does? He says, no, I came in peace. I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. They're going to go you know, perform a sacrifice. And then he uh, asked, make sure Jesse and his sons are invited. Like, you know, oh, by the way, because they're not really telling anybody what he's there to do. Uh, so they all enter and they go and have dinner after the sacrifice. And he takes a look at the oldest and goes, well, okay, I can see why you brought me here, God. Wow, this guy is Hollywood casting for a king. You know, he's tall, he's got that blocked jaw, the bright blue eyes, you know, he's perfect. And uh, God says, no, don't look at his appearance or the height. I rejected him already. Don't worry about him. He's nobody to me. He's a, he's, he's a loser. Uh, God sees the man not uh, as the man sees. For man looks the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So there's going to be something special about this king. It's going to be his heart. And so they go right down the line and they go through all of the sons and God says, nope, 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 nope. And, and Sam was looking around the table, and there's nobody left. And he says, okay, I thought you said you're going to bring me somebody. Uh, and so uh, he asks him, is this it? Is this everybody? And uh, they said, uh, well, yeah, except the runt of the litter, you know, or the youngest one. He's out in the sheep field. He's not good for anything else but tending sheep. He's the youngest, the seventh son of seven sons. This guy's a nobody. Uh, we didn't even invite him to dinner. He's got to stay out there. And he kind of smells like sheep, and you really don't want to meet him anyway. And this is the good sons. Uh, so he says, well, I'm not going to sit down and eat unless you bring him in. So, okay, this sets up this big moment. Uh, they're still just kind of searching, you know, for, for that one, and he's clearly not here. And so they go, and they get him, and David comes in. Now he's ruddy with beautiful eyes. Ruddy is a word which kind of means red. It doesn't really show up in the Bible. And most theologians believe he has acne. <laughs> this, is a, this is a nice little way of saying his acne. So he, and and uh, he has beautiful eyes though. Uh, so Samuel's saying, you know, it wasn't a total loss. At least I liked his eyes. Because Samuel's writing this and he's remembering it. He's kind of small and oily and pimply. But oh, he had nice eyes, you know. Uh, and so that's when God says, arise and anoint him. You know, like God gets excited. This is the guy. 
And Samuel must be, man, you must be kidding me. This is like, except the eyes, he's got nothing going for him. Uh, but he takes the horn and he anoints him in the midst of the brothers. Now watch this. The spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. We will never see this again until Jesus Christ. This is the only time the entire Bible, except for Jesus, that the Holy Spirit comes and stays. And after Jesus, of course, he sends the Holy Spirit. But up until that, we won't see it again. Nobody else, not even Moses, had the Spirit fall on him and stay on him. Nobody. Only David. Really, really special. So he comes down and he stays. Now what are you going to do? Well, let, let me tell you who he's going to be. He's going to be a warrior king. Israel is a nation surrounded then, like today, by a bunch of people who hated them. They just, wanted to, they just want to obliterate them off the earth. And so David's going to have to be a fighter. He's going to have to be a warrior king. So they've got to teach him how to fight. You clearly, you know, so at this point, you know, we know what they're going to do. They're going to send him someplace, like Samuel's going to take him someplace to some fighting wizard or something. This way it always works in the movies, right? Harry Potter goes off to study with Dumbledore and, and you know, uh, Merlin teaches King Arthur. So we're going to go do something really special. Nope, he goes straight back out to the same sheep field he just came in from. Like, man, does the Bible not know how this is supposed to go? Combat training. I know Kung Fu. That's how it's supposed to go, right? That's it right there. Some magic spell, something. David needs to know Kung Fu. I mean, he really needs to fight this man. And you would think that they would send him to somebody who would teach him to fight, or at least some place where he learned to fight. He goes back to the same sheep field he was just in. What in the world is God thinking? Listen, if there's one lesson that you need to take away from the Bible, it's this. Where you are does not matter. What matters is who you're with. That's what matters. And that's the whole Bible in a nutshell. Where you are, what's going on, situations, none of that matters. Here's what matters. Who are you with? And David, what everything changed for him was because when he went back to the sheep field, he went back with the Holy Spirit. Everything changes now. Same place. Now he's with, now he's with the Holy Spirit and everything's different. This is what we have to understand. God can teach you anything you need to know anywhere he needs to teach it to you. You don't need to worry. You don't need to work so hard for this. What we need to work hard at is keeping the Holy Spirit tight, close to us. We've got to make sure that we don't do anything that's going to do something about that. Now, we don't see much of what goes on. We're actually told this later, kind of matter-of-factly, as David's telling a story later. He tells us this story, and he's talking actually to Saul. He wants to go fight a giant, and Saul says, no way. You're going to get splattered halfway across the hillside. You'll just be little bits and pieces. Forget about it. And uh, David says, no, that's not going to happen to me. And here's how he knows that's not going to happen to him. He says, your servant, he's talking about himself, has killed both the lion and the bear. Now, I have videos on this, guys. And you need a, if you're interested in this story, go, to, um, go back to our website. Look for a sermon called It's Not About the Giant. I'm going to show you what it means to fight a lion and a bear. In that, I don't have time today. But the videos are amazing to see what, what it is. It's like you don't understand what this is like until you've stood next to one. I don't know if you've ever been like close to one. Uh, I was next to a mountain lion once across a plate of glass and for some reason it didn't like me and it charged the glass and I know there's glass there and I still jumped. I mean it's scary to think of how much power in a lion and a bear. We kind of ho-hum it. Nobody, nobody fought a lion and a bear when they were 10 year old shepherd boys. Shepherd boys were taught to run and hide when they came and come back later and see what you could salvage. 
you, you do not fight. But he's saying, no, I fought him and I killed him. Uh, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he taunted the armies of the living God. Now, here's why he knows. Not because he's a great fighter. No, no. He says this, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from this man. He's big, but he's not bigger than a bear. And he's fast, but he's not faster than a lion. And guess what? God delivered me from their paws. See, this tells me the fight didn't go well. And I love that because I was thinking about that. But it gives me hope, you know, because David just didn't pr- cruise through those two fights. He, he, he had a moment when he, he had exposed himself and the paw was coming at him. And those paws had these, these, these slashes on them that can actually rip things in two. And so this paw was coming at him and the Holy Spirit went, whoa, David, and grabbed him by the thing and pulled him back, you know, the paw, woo, you know, right past him. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He's saying the, the Holy Spirit saved me from the paw. By all rights, I should have been dead, but the Holy Spirit pulled me out of the way. Gave me impossible reflexes because I didn't have the reflexes as a 10, 11-year-old boy that I should have had. The Holy Spirit saved me. See, this is the thing. Now, here's the other thing about it. That Holy Spirit never left David. In his entire life, David never loses a battle. Probably the greatest warrior the world has ever seen. Never. Not singly, not leading as a captain, not leading as a king. If David was on the battlefield, they won. He had impossible reflexes because he was anointed by the Lord to be a warrior king. God can do anything he needs to do to make you able to do the thing he's calling you to do. The anointing like salvation is not given because of merit. It's given because of grace. It's a gift. Don't be afraid to step out in faith when God's called you to do something because he is going to put himself behind you and make you successful because he wants you to succeed in his kingdom. He wants you to. That's the whole point of the anointing is to make you succeed in his kingdom. And why does he use you? Because he wants you to be part of this. He wants you to be part of his kingdom. He wants you to know what it's like to, to walk in confidence knowing that God's walking with you. He wants you to feel that. That's what we were born to do. To walk in the power of the Lord and join him in his victories. He wants to make us part of it because he wants us to be part of it. He just wants us to be there. There's a great scripture that comes up in Second Chronicles. The eyes of the Lord will run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. He says, here's what God's doing. He's looking. Whose heart's loyal to me? Oh, I'm going to make myself strong with them. And I'm going to let everybody see I'm with them because their heart is with me. So as we walk through the fountain gate and the Holy Spirit says, here's what I want to do. I want to protect you from evil and I want to give you the anointing. Are we willing to be that heart that God can take and use strongly? Would you all please pray with me?